is good to be at Paragon again. I had the joy of being here last night, and uh, it is fun to see what God does in a congregation. I remember sitting with your pastor uh, several years ago, a few years ago, and talking about his heart and dream to plant a church in this area. And Paragon was really birthed uh, as a part of that conversation. And one of the great joys I have is being sure that our churches and their church plants have the resources uh, and the encouragement that's needed. Uh, my official title is Chief Executive Officer of the Baptist Convention of New Mexico, and I don't really like that title, so I changed it to being the Chief Encouragement Officer of the Baptist Convention of New Mexico, because it really is my passion and my dream to encourage churches and individuals and people. And I remember uh, your pastor when he was struggling uh, with a health issue several years ago. I remember when you all were still meeting in the school. Uh, some of you might have been a part of that. And I had the joy of being there one Sunday morning uh, to kind of fill in uh, for Pastor Matt at that time. And it was absolutely a, a wonderful experience just to see all that God is doing in your church and through your church. And your pastor and family are, are very, very dear friends to Sharon and myself, just as Jerome and his precious family. And I remember when Jerome was just a single teenage boy in high school. So it's amazing to watch, watch God do some amazing things in his life. I want you to open your Bible this morning to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Someone wisely said one time, the difference between teaching and preaching is how fast you talk. Uh, I, I don't know that that would be necessarily true in every area, but I would like to kind of teach, preach this morning, if I may. And, and in 1 Samuel chapter 17, I, I would like to introduce you to a person that you know very well. Uh, in fact, you know this story. You could, you could stand up this morning and you could preach this sermon. But I would encourage you to let's consider this uh, really from allowing the Scripture to speak into our life. My prayer this morning, quite candidly, as we open the Word of God, that you and I will hear and see the will of God in our lives. Uh, we gather this morning as the people of God, so my prayer is that we would hear and see His will for our life, because honestly, you will never know the will of God apart from the Word of God. God speaks to us very clearly through His Word. So let's see how this passage applies to us. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, we recognize in verse 1 the Philistine armies have gathered. In verse 2, we see that King Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, stands uh, with his armies gathered, and they are encamped in a valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array and encountered the Philistines. The Philistines being those dreaded people, those uh, Old Testament terrorists, if I could be so profound, because where they lodged or dwelt there on, on the coast, the sea coast, they were individuals who had developed great weaponry way advanced to the neighbors around them. But they were also known as a very fierce people, a very fighting people. They were, they were profoundly hostile to their neighbors. But, but I would say to you, as Israel is gathering here, they gather in the valley of Elah, and it's quite amazing because you have a ravine, uh, and you have basically two uh, mesas or plateaus, and you can see one another. 
Uh, one army could stand on one side, much like a football arena today or a stadium. Standing on one side, you can just see them cheering against the opponent, uh, break their knee, kick their socks, whatever it takes, make it stop. Yeah, I don't know what the, what the chant is in Rio Rancho area, but, but I would say to you, that's really what you had happening. You had the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines, and they were chanting against one another, but something happens. The Bible says, as they were gathered there, in verse number 3, and the Philistines stood up on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood up on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them, and then enters a champion. He is a champion from the armies of the Philistines, and you know his name as Goliath. And truly he is a mighty warrior. Now, Goliath is no small dude. In fact, you will notice in the Scripture, it defines for us the enormity of this man. If you read the passage closely, you'll see in verse number 4, this man from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Well, let me just kind of break that down for you in, in simple English. This guy stood nine feet, nine inches tall. Nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, a cubit is that length from the end of your fingertip to the back of your elbow. It's roughly 18 inches. And a span is that length that goes from the end of your pinky to the end of your thumb, which is roughly nine inches. So here is a man who stands an enormity of an individual. I'm the shortest person in my family. I have a son that's just shy of seven feet. I have my oldest son who's about Matt's height. He's uh, a very strong individual. Uh, uh, he benches about 500 pounds. He uh, is a, a breacher for a SWAT team in Kansas, and uh, he's just a big kid. The other day, he was sent me a picture from the gym, and he was showing me his guns, and, and his he was growing up, Dad used to arm wrestle a lot, and, and he said, well, I think I can take the old man now. Well, that really gave me, like, throwing down the gauntlet, if you understand, uh, a dad and a son. Uh, so I began to get back in the gym, and I go there, and we lift weights and suck oxygen and lift weights in the geriatric unit where I go. And, and as we're there, you know, some of us on the treadmill, uh, high bursts of speed, uh, we can we can get up to a mile in two hours if we if we slow the machine down. But but I would say to you, I saw that picture of my son and I thought, well, I'm going to teach this little rascal something. Huh. Little rascal, when I hug my boys goodbye, they I put my face in their chest and they pat me on the head and say, "Good dad." Uh, but but I I thought I'm going to teach him and. So I got been getting back in the gym, and I'm, I'm lifting and, and all of these good things again, and, and I'm going to challenge him here in a few weeks. But this is going to be the challenge. Put him up there, big boy. But this is the rules. The guy that wins gets no inheritance. My hunch is I can still take him at 60 years old, amen? Because, you know, he may be strong, but he's not dumb. So my hunch is this 60-year-old man's going to be able to 
put this strong dinosaur down. Well, this guy named Goliath is that beast of a man. In fact, the Bible says that the armor that he wears weighs about 125 pounds, and, and the spear that he throws, the head of that spear, is about 15 pounds. When I was growing up, I threw a shot in a discus in track, and that was the area that I served and, and was the nose guard on the football team. But, but I would say to you, as I grew up throwing a shot and a discus and, and those things, it was a little bit different. You see, in junior high, you'll throw a six or an eight pound shot. In, in high school, you, you'll maybe get up to a 12. Or sometimes, if you go to the Olympics, you're throwing 16 pounds. But I cannot imagine a guy that is consistently throwing a spear that the head is 15 pounds. You see, Goliath was a monster. But let me just encourage you as we look at this story, and you'll see on the screen, there's several things about this story I'd just like to unfold for you this morning. The story of David and Goliath is much more than merely a story about a young fighting boy fighting an enemy far larger than he is. You see, it really is the conflict of the ages. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that you and I are at war every single day if you're a believer. In fact, the Bible tells us that we have an adversary, we have an enemy, and he is doing battle with us every single day. And I would encourage you to recognize that you are in the midst of a military action. It is a military action that has cosmic dimensions. It is a military action that is supernaturally based. It is a military action that requires you and I to be focused, laser-focused as we live our Christian life, to be certain that we win in this battle. Now, I would encourage you to know that we have a commander-in-chief who is the author and the finisher of our faith. He has already won the war, but you and I are still in confrontation. But let me just ask you this morning to consider with me, as we look at this individual, this question. If this is really a story not only about David and Goliath, but it's a story about Jerome and Joe, how does this play out for us? Well, I would encourage you to know that every one of us in this room, in some way or another, is battling a giant. In fact, I don't know what your giant is, but I know as I visit and deal with people that there's no individual that is not in the midst of a difficult time. There's a giant of some sort that seems overwhelming. Some, it may be a financial giant. These are tough days economically all across America and literally around the world. For others, it may be a giant that is not a financial issue. It may be a health giant. I remember this last December, my wife became ill and it seemed as though she was not getting better, but became progressively worse. And she, as we sought the greatest medical care we could find, we, we discovered she had a very aggressive malady. In fact, it almost incapacitated her. There were days I thought it was all she could do, merely to dress and to make it to the living room. She was incapacitated. And she is battling this giant. And it was amazing to me last night as I left the church here 
as I was driving back to my home, I'll never forget a friend of mine who I have known for years who was very, very ill, wrote me a note last night and emailed it to me, and I read it when I pulled into my driveway. And he said to me, Joe, three and a half years ago, you remember how sick I was. I could not move. I was in constant pain. And he began to share with me his issue. And I thought, that's what my wife had. That's exactly what my wife had. Now, now, I say all of that to say, I don't know what your giant is. Maybe it's a giant of a family problem. You know, Somehow we believe that if we just love Jesus, all of our family is going to love us. Somehow we'll just sing the Barney song, I love you and you love me, and we're just a happy family. But you know what Jesus said when you trust Christ and follow Him, He does not come to bring peace but a sword. There really is division that comes because not everyone will be as excited about Christ as you should be. But I would encourage you to consider, I don't know what your battle is. I don't know what your giant is. Maybe it's a spiritual issue. Maybe it's an issue emotionally. Maybe you've wrestled with the giant called depression. I've known individuals and some of the greatest people in Christian history wrestled with huge bouts of depression. I don't know what your giant is, but I would encourage you to see that this battle is not merely a kid's story from an Old Testament book. It is God's story about Jesus working and speaking in your life. So as we consider this, I would encourage you to see what happens. This giant, this massive man, gathers and begins to defile the armies of Israel. He goes out and begins to insult them. He not only insults the army, he insults the God of the army. He insults the king. He insults everyone. He basically says to Saul and all his followers that your grandma wore combat boots. I mean, he is saying the dirtiest, low-down things he could possibly say. But because of the size of this man, for 42 consecutive days, they hear his insults. Now, I would encourage you to understand that you have an adversary that continually insults you. In fact, the Bible says that the devil, or Satan, is best known not only as being a liar, but he is the accuser of the brethren. You see, he is constantly making accusation. I don't know if you realize it, but there are people in life that don't have the gift of encouragement. There are some folks that you're around them and they will suck the life out of you. They're going to say things like, well, you're not very smart, you're not very pretty, you're not very intelligent, you're not very wise, you're not very strong, you're not very whatever. But the fact is, all of us have a commonality in that there is one who insults all of us. It is the devil himself. So this story is like that. And I would encourage you to see what happens. I love what takes place. The Bible says that this young boy named David goes to visit his brothers. We recognize in verse 13 his three brothers are listed. In fact, they are named by name, and, and we see them. And David is sent on a mission in verse 15 to go check on his brothers and to take them supplies. 
So he's going to check on his brothers and take them supplies. And as he travels to take them supplies, he's taking them bread and cheese and meal and, and all of those wonderful things. And as he travels there, he shows up on the battlefield. And here's this giant guy named Goliath who is insulting again the armies of Israel. And David says, what's going on here? Why haven't one of you guys dealt with this? And they look at him and think, you little runt. Do you see the size of that guy? But you know what David does? He says, I'll take him on. And you know what happens. The Bible tells us in verse number 40, there's a lot of story about this and you can read it all. But in verse number 40, young David takes a stick in his hand and he chooses for himself five smooth stones from a brook in verse 40. Now, the concept of those stones is important. They are smooth stones, not because they are more powerful smooth, but because they are more accurate smooth. One of my hobbies, some preachers play golf, others, others might jog or run. Uh, I, I shot pistols competitively and had the privilege seven different times of shooting at the American World Shoot-Off, and, and as I shot at those championships, I, I loved shooting pistols and became quite accurate with a pistol. Never had a bad deacon's meeting in all those years of ministry that I had because they knew I was a pistol-packing preacher. But, but the fact is, I loved to shoot. That was just fun. And, and some guy one day said that the pistol... A 45 caliber. In fact, there was a book not written too long ago, a leadership book that talked about the, the velocity and the ballistics of a smooth stone from a sling. And this book suggested that it would be comparable to a 45. Now, I don't quite believe that, but I would say the smoothness of that stone created an impeccable accuracy. And David is very, very exact in choosing the right stones because he's going against a massive enemy. And as he does that, something amazing takes place. The Bible says that he approaches, and in verse number 41, the Philistine approached on and approached David. The Philistine had his shield bearer. The Philistine looked and saw David, and he saw him with disdain. He looked down on him. He thought, who's this little kid, this little red kid, who is coming? And, and by the way, it says that David was handsome in appearance, which seems to indicate to me that the Goliath was ugly in appearance. It is just a common thought. Here's an ugly giant, and here's a little handsome teenage kid. And the giant sees this boy and begins to curse him. In fact, the Philistine said to David in verse 44, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. You're coming at me with sticks. And the Philistine in verse 43 cursed David by his gods, a little g-o-d-s. He called him everything he could possibly call him. And then David, in verse 45, said to the Philistine, You're coming to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. I just want you to know, big guy, I am here today to settle the score. Now, there's an amazing thing about this, David. We recognize in the previous chapter, in chapter 16, in chapter 16, verse 18, in chapter 18, verse 12, 
in chapter 18, verse 14, in chapter 18, verse 28, we are told four times in this text, in this narrative, that the Lord was with David. In fact, there's a wonderful truth in the New Testament. It says, if God be for us, who can stand against us? But I would submit to you, if God be against you, it doesn't matter who's with you. But I would encourage you, this Philistine doesn't recognize God is against what he is doing to the armies of Israel. And he is going to use this young king, David, who will follow Saul as the second king of Israel to deal with this. And you know the story. Young David goes and he takes the sling. And uh, Some theologians have talked about five smooth stones. Why is it that there are five stones? Did David think he would miss? Well, some preachers of old have suggested that Goliath had four brothers. Now, we know Goliath did not have four brothers as specified in Scripture. We know of four other giants. It's quite amazing to me, as we look at this, this young boy is in the midst of a battle. He's about to battle a giant. Now, he has these five stones, one giant. Now, is it possible that there were others that young David thought he might have to battle with? We don't know. But we know this in 2 Samuel chapter 21. You'll read in your Bible, in 2 Samuel 21, excuse me, you'll see verse number 22. Everybody's killing giants. I like that. When one guy stands up and has the courage to take on a giant, Everybody has the courage to stand up and deal with their giant. I don't know about you, but I like to be around giant killers. Amen? I just, I just, there's something charges me up to be around people that have the energy to slay the giant. Yeah, it, it amazes me. I spent a few hours here a couple of weeks ago uh, at the rescue mission in downtown Albuquerque, and I got to speak to some great giant killers. I got to speak to an individual that had battled alcohol addiction so powerfully that it destroyed every aspect of his life. But he, through the grace of Almighty God, has won over that giant. I got to speak to people who were strung out on drugs. And and I love to be around giant killers, whatever they be. But I would encourage you to see this David stands here as a youth, taking on a giant of experience. In fact, the Bible tells us in chapter 17, verse 14, chapter 17, verse 33, and chapter 17, verse 42, that David was just a boy. Just a boy. Just a youth. But then it tells us that Goliath was a man, a warrior of experience. In chapter 17, verse 4, verse 23, verse 33, here this Goliath stands. That's interesting. Old Goliath, standing here taunting David. David takes his sling and lets her go. And you know the story. The stone sunk deep into Goliath's head. And Goliath falls over. And David goes and removes the sword from Goliath's sheath and removes the head from Goliath. And we know that David goes back into Jerusalem and literally takes the head of Goliath. I had one of the people last night ask me a little riddle. They said, well, how many stones did David bring back with him? 
And my answer was immediately, well, four. Well, he joked, and he said, no, he brought back five because he brought back the head of Goliath where one of the stones was buried. So, so I guess you, you don't lose a stone that way, amen? Uh, but I would encourage you to consider what happens. It so invigorates the army of Israel that as you read very clearly what begins to happen in verse 50 and following, after David has prevailed with his sling against this giant, that the army of the Philistines begin to turn and run. They are absolutely dismayed because their giant, their great warrior Goliath is dead. And then the army of Israel responds in kind and slays the Philistine army. So that's the story. But as Paul Harvey would say, what is the rest of the story? Well, let's think for just a moment. I don't know about you, but I have discovered in every great system, you have people who are known as the superstars. You have people who are the upfront people. But I would encourage you to recognize there's never been a winning football team with a great quarterback that didn't have a phenomenal line. There's never been a great line that didn't have a phenomenal water boy. There's never been a great coach that didn't have a much greater wife. You see, you and I live in the world where we raise up and see superstars. But as we look at the rest of the story, let me just share with you something that jumped out at me as I was preparing this message for your church. I'd never preached on this passage in this way until I knew I was coming to your church and and I talked to your pastor. Uh, just before he left the country, he said, what are you going to preach on? I said, I'm going to talk about the keeper. He said, what? I said, I'm going to talk about the keeper. Because let me just encourage you, you have a great pastor, but your church is not based on a great pastor. It's based on a great God who has great people in the fellowship who are the keepers. Let me explain it in this way. When David is going to take supplies to his brother. What was David's occupation? Say it. He was a shepherd. But you know what the Bible tells us? If you will notice there in verse number 20, that David left the flock not unattended, but left the flock with a keeper. You know, that's remarkable. You know, David could have never gone off to battle had he not had a trusted individual to leave the flock with. I remember when I was in the third grade, I was in the operetta. I was the foreman of the frogs. In fact, I could still sing a line, a frog went a court and he did ride a hum. You know, I can still tell you part of my song. But you know what? For that brief 20 seconds that I sang my frog went a court and song, My son, when he was in the second grade, came out of a trash can and sang his piece, I Love Trash. You know, there's something about that, but may I tell you, what makes a play work? It's people that I refer to as balcony people. It's the people that are behind the scenes. 
It's the individuals that aren't there getting their name and lights. They're lucky to even show up in the credits. I don't know about you, but I came from a very small place, number nine of ten children. We were so poor, we only spelled it with one O because that's all we could afford. I did not finish at the top of my class in high school. In fact, I finished, thank you, Lottie. I finished at the bottom of my class. I was battling another giant in that time of life. But I would say to you, I'm not where I am because I'm handsome, because obviously you can see I am not. I'm not where I am because I'm intelligent, because I've been around some very smart people. And I'll guarantee you, I am not. I'm not where I am because I am the most spiritual person in the world. In fact, I know the vileness that lives in my heart. But I would say to you, God has allowed me to be where I am for this season of my life to be a keeper. The back door, the back scene, the individual that's hidden out in the balcony area. And you know, when I found the word keeper, I began to look at all the places in the Bible, and it talked about Abel being a keeper of the flock, and and Cain asking, God, am I my brother's keeper? Can you just hear the disdain in that statement? And then there's a keeper of livestock, and we see a keeper of the sheep. And and by the way, when David gets to the battlefield, he leaves the supplies with a keeper of the baggage. It's interesting to me, two times in this 17th chapter, the word keeper shows up. It's that obscure person. We see David by name. We see Saul by name. We see David's brothers by name. We see Goliath by name. But here's this person with no credits given, except they're a keeper. May I tell you what makes every church a great church is there are people who are keepers. They're doing those things quietly behind the scenes to make the drama play out. They are those individuals that are not there to seek a position or power or authority. They have no personal agenda except to serve the Lord and love the people. They're keepers. For 30 years, I had the privilege of pastoring local Baptist churches. And I can tell you, in every single church, there were people that I looked to as the keepers. They were the individuals I knew I could pick up the phone or call. Or they were the people that you wouldn't even have to call. They just showed up. Because they were the keepers. And you know what amazed me as I began to really try to exhaust this concept as, as I would read it in every translation and, and read it in Hebrew and look at all of the in-texts about it. May, may I say to you, what amazed me is there's those who are called the keeper of the wardrobe, those who are called the keeper of the king's force, those who are called the keeper of the gates. And then ultimately in Psalm 122 verse 15, you'll find, excuse me, Psalm 121, verse 5, you'll find the Lord is your keeper. Now, I don't know about you, but I like being kept, amen? And my wife would tell you, I'm high maintenance. 
And I don't mean that bad, and she wouldn't mean it bad. But you see, I was involved in an accident many, many years ago. As a result, I broke my back in five different places. Hips and pelvis. and uh, Shattered my right elbow. Uh, left arm's getting pretty strong. Right elbow. This arm will never be strong like it once was. But I'm still going to win that wrestling match with this left arm. But you know, this morning when I got ready to come to church, there was an assignment that had to be done. It was called tie your shoes. Now, a third grader can tie their shoes, but a 60-year-old with a broken back can't tie his own shoes. So before I left the house this morning, my sweet wife tied my shoes. And my prayer is every day as I leave the house, oh God, don't let them be untied because I'm going to have to find somebody to tie them back. But you see, God has blessed me with a keeper who's willing to tie a shoe, who's willing to shop for my crazy diet, who's willing to iron my shirt. Years ago, I had the joy of pastoring a lady named Mrs. Ford. She had six children and was widowed at a young age. She raised all of her kids, and as she raised those kids, I asked her, I said, how in the world did you do that? You were one of the poorest people I knew. How did you survive that? And you know what she began to tell me? She said, every time I changed a diaper and washed it, or every time I mended a torn pair of trousers, or every time I ironed a shirt, or every time I washed and folded underwear, I just prayed that God would bless the child that would be wearing those. You see, she was a keeper. And I would say to you, the rest of the story really goes like this. God has called you and I to be a keeper. There's someone that depends on me every single day. And there's me who depend on others every single day. So what's your story? Really, three things. What does it take to be a keeper? Well, the book of Matthew chapter 23 tells us that if you're going to be a keeper, you have to be willing to not desire to be served, but to serve other people. You know what that's saying? There's an aspect of humility to be a keeper. Not demanding that your name be in the credits. Humility. When I was elected as the executive officer of the Baptist Convention of New Mexico, there are 41 people in the world that have the same job that I have. And I remember one of those brothers gathering me together. And I remember him saying to me, Joe, I'm going to teach you something today, and you better listen very closely. He said, I want you to say this with me and learn this poem. When you think that you're important, when your ego is in bloom, when you think you're the most competent person in the room, when you think that your leaving will leave an unfillable hole, then the following experience should humble your soul. Take a bucket, fill it with water, put your hand into the wrist, slosh it around, move it around. But when you remove your hand, the hole that's left is how much you'll be missed. 
You know what he was saying to me? You and I all have the tendency to exaggerate our own worth. Every one of us in this room will one day be what's listed above the doors. Exits. In your family, you may be the it. In your school, you may be the it. But one day, exit. I like to walk through cemeteries. I love to read headstones. You know what dawned on me one day in two generations? No one will even know anything about who was in those cemeteries. You know, I look at the day someone's born, the date someone dies, and I realize it's short. And I'm fascinated by different headstones. Here lies Les Moore, shot six times with a 44. No less, no more. Here lies Jonathan Pease. Pease ain't here, only the pod. Pease shelled out and went home to God. I, I am fascinated by those little epitaphs. But the fact is, None of us really are here to be anything but keepers. And may I say to you, secondly, it requires that you and I empty ourselves. Just as Jesus emptied himself, we're to empty ourselves. I don't know about you, but most conflicts that I'm involved in have a lot to do with my own selfishness when it comes to my relationships personally. I want my way. But you know what? Jesus emptied himself. He left heaven to come to earth. And then I would say to you, you and I need to recognize, according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 and verse 23, that we remember that when we are serving, regardless of what we're doing, we're really serving God. Serve as you're serving the Lord. You see, that's what made Mrs. Ford such an incredible mom. She saw the folding of those children's clothes as serving the Lord. That's what made my friend Doyle Humphreys such an incredible deacon and servant in the church. Whatever it was called, he called it as serving the Lord. And may I tell you, whether or not you're a dentist or a plumber, a trash man, Whatever your calling in life, recognize that you're going to work in the morning not to do a job, but to serve God. God's put you in that place. God has made it possible for you to serve in that position. And my challenge to you is to remember if you're really going to be a keeper, to be someone that serves the Lord. And everything we do and everything we say, we're to serve the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for allowing us this time this morning just to open your word together. And God, I know there are people in this room that have wrestled with great battles and perhaps still wrestling. We know, God, that there are giants, mighty giants, that seek to destroy our faith. And Father, I pray today that you would just bless, give us courage, Fortify our hearts and our souls. And God, this morning, Lord, perhaps in this room, this number of people, there's someone here today that just needs Jesus. 
They've been fighting it on their own for a long time. And today they'll surrender and say, Jesus, please come into my life and save me. Forgive me. Transform me. Maybe you've been battling for a while. And God has said to you this morning, there's hope. You can win. But you need to quit trying and start trusting. If you're here this morning and Christ is not your Savior and your Lord, wouldn't you just cry out to Him right now? Oh God, save me. Please forgive me of my sins. Oh God, help me to live for you. God, I'm turning from my sin and trusting you. Maybe this morning you just feel the weight of a battle that's just overwhelming. Wouldn't you just say this morning, Oh God, Let me just release the battle into your hands. God, if you can direct a stone from a sling to take down a giant, you're more than capable of God of dealing with any battle I'm in. Maybe this morning you just need someone to pray with you. I'd be happy to do that. We're going to stand together, and I'm just going to encourage you If you sense that you need to talk, to visit, to pray, maybe this morning you've received Christ, you've asked God, you've prayed, God, forgive me, come into my life, save me. You need to make that public this morning. Just as David stepped out publicly, would you step out this morning? So we stand together. Won't you come? Come on. Come on. Oh, God.